one of the things, uh, Christmas gifts that showed up in our home uh, was a Lego set. And it's very well known in our home that I am not a good builder of Legos. Really not good. Uh, you see, there are instructions. Have you played with Legos? You know, you get a set and there are instructions. Uh, I don't like following instructions, okay? And, and if it makes sense to someone that this piece would go with this piece, that's great for them. But it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. What I am good at, what I am very good at, what I'm really well known for in our home is being the Lego finder, all right? When someone, uh, particularly the children, but I have done this when Paul's making his Lego sets too. When he's looking for a piece and he can't find it, call mom. And I'm there and I can find those, you know, intricate pieces. I'm very proud of my finding. I am not proud of my building. We are uh, entering into a sermon series on Nehemiah. And it catches our attention because it's a book about building. It's an account of, of people rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after they were destroyed. And, and it's not just like Legos. They, they had to do a lot, a lot of work. And this building was really, it was really important. It was important for the history of the people. It was important uh, uh, for the future of the people. But there is so much more to this book, uh, Nehemiah, that, that is being built, that's being rebuilt, and that's actually being redeemed in the book of Nehemiah. You see, God is doing the work of, of finding and building a new people, not just building walls. And so I want us to, to open up to Nehemiah today. I would encourage you, um, if you can, Use the Bible that's in the pew in front of you or use your own Bible. Um, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and it's about uh, more than a third, less than a half of the way through, all right? Uh, that just helps you get to where you need to be. Um, and we will be opening this up every week. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of chapters, but I'm not going to... The preacher isn't specifically going to read all of uh, the chapters. And so I just want you to have it available so that you could read all the other words that I won't be able to be reading up here. Uh, so if you have opened to Nehemiah, uh, you'll see that Nehemiah is spelled in a unique way. But it follows the book of Ezra, if you just turn one page back. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were written as one book and then divided into two so that we might be able to understand uh, the story a little bit better. Um, and they were written, um, or it's set after the Babylonians, maybe you've heard about them in history class, after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple and then brought all the people from Israel uh, that lived in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, they took them out of their home and their land, and they brought them into exile in Babylon, okay? We're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. Um, so this book takes place uh, 50 years later or more after the people return to Jerusalem. And now they're, they're back, all right? So they've been in exile, and they're now back. And there are three key leaders that... that participated in, in one helping bring the people back, three human leaders, I should say, uh, three key human leaders to help bring them back, um, Zerubbabel, 
Ezra and Nehemiah. We don't have a book of Zerubbabel, which I think was kindness on God's part because it's a lot to say. But, uh, but we do have accounts of each of these leaders and their participation in bringing the people back. And so um, each of them have a very unique uh, kind of part of the story of how Israel came back out of exile, what they were doing. And we are specifically focusing on Nehemiah. So uh, the people return, and they begin to rebuild uh, what, was light, what was laid in ruins. But, but it's not all as the people had hoped. And so as we start on this journey, I, I want us to just open up our brains, our minds, our spirits uh, to seeing things not always as we'd hoped that they would be but seeing what actually takes place with God in the midst. So we're going to jump in, uh, reading Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and then we're going to jump to chapter 2 and read 17 and 18. <coughs> Excuse me. Nehemiah 1, uh, 8 through 11. This is Nehemiah talking to God. He says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, <clears throat> If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Uh, uh, Nehemiah continues, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He should have said amen. That would have helped us. Uh, and then he says, I was cup bearer to the king. He's talking about the king of Babylon. Now jump with me uh, to chapter 2, verse 17. It starts, then I said to him, excuse me, then I said to them, verse 17, then I said to them, you will see the trouble we are in. Oh, by the way, he's talking to uh, the king and all um, uh, and, and the people around the king. Uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. One way to read Nehemiah is to read Nehemiah as a historical document. And this is not invaluable. And I don't want us to miss uh, the, the, the history that's going on here. But <clears throat> I also don't want us to miss what God is saying and doing in history. You see, when we read the Bible in partnership with the Holy Spirit, facts, historical facts, are meant to lead us to formation and transformation. They're, they're the handholds in the mystery of the story of God. And so I want us, as we journey through Nehemiah, to honor these handholds. I don't want us to dismiss them. But I also don't want us to rely on them for what they are not. A historical fact or facts laid out in Scripture are there to move us towards God. 
They are not there that we might stake a claim that we know everything and that we have all the facts correct. Facts lead us to formation and transformation. The facts, if we can open them and observe them, might lead us to life. And so I want us to consider this idea of a people returning from exile. It's a fact. Many of us, maybe most of us, have not experienced physical exile, being taken or removed from our homes or a familiar place and forced to live in a place that is unfamiliar or unwanted. But I can imagine that many of us at some point or another in our lives have experienced a spiritual exile. Spiritual exile is the experience of being removed from all that is spiritually familiar. Sometimes people don't have a choice in this removal. Things happen in their life that created a seismic shift in their life with God. Grief can do that. Trauma can do that. Literal displacement can do that. Injustice can do that. Failure on the part of a church or an organization or a system can do that. And these catalytic events or series of events, however they come to you, they're not desired or, or preferred by the person that receives them, but, but what happens is it creates a, 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 an experience of exile. And it's not as though the people who, who, who participated in, in the action towards these people uh, were like, oh, I know. It's not always that they were like, I know, I want to hurt these people and cause them to go in the, into exile. Now, sometimes the effects of sin that are still very present in our world are still very present within in people who love God and who say they love God. And I, I grieve this. Sometimes it's those experiences that cause people to go into spiritual exile. In other instances, people can be in spiritual exile because of what we call maybe a drifting away from God. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, if the, the spiritual life with God is accompanied with, with dissatisfaction or unanswered questions or true doubts, maybe even rebellion, people move away from that which does not seem to serve them anymore. And, and this grieves me, and, and this grieves God, and also, I, I get it. I don't think it's a stretch to say that most spiritual journeys involve some kind of drifting, stepping away from what God might want, stepping away from that relationship. In either instance of this kind of spiritual exile, whether it happened to us or, or we chose to drift away, whether it happened to them or they chose to drift away, I would beg of us to, to hold with compassion and curiosity and love those people and experiences that look like spiritual exile. I beg of us to hold these people in this way with compassion and love and curiosity because as we read in Nehemiah, as we're going to continue to read, God holds on to God's people even when they're in exile. God held on to Israel even while they were in exile. So we too, 
are invited to hold, not with clenched fists, with unclenched fists, those whom, uh, for whom spiritual exile is all too real. Maybe we ourselves are in a bit of a spiritual exile. I invite us to hold ourselves carefully, too. I don't want us to just believe the facts of the exile and rush past them and settle on the, the joyful, happy moments and the facts that Nehemiah presents us, that, that the people were brought back home and that, and that they had their land and their space and their temple back that everything worked out and, and that, that, that God was always just waiting for, the, for that thing and so then it's all good and happy. And while it's very true that, that we pick up the story when the people have, have returned to the land uh, and they have their land back and they get to start rebuilding, they are not the same people they were when they left. Literally, they're not, they're not the same people. You see, these people were in exile for decades, decades. And those who held memory of their former land were, were really old now. I mean, maybe not really old, like 70, okay? <laughs> I think I should sit down. <laughs> they were older than they were when they left, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> Some people, when they were exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, they, they died in Babylon, not because they were old. They may have just died. We've gotten off on a tangent. Uh, anyway, they weren't the same people. Many uh, who, uh, also didn't return after being in exile in Babylon. They decided to stay there, and so they didn't return. And so families were separated, and people uh, were scattered still. So much was lost. And now the, here they are uh, on the precipice of discovering a new way of doing things, a new way in a familiar place that actually maybe wasn't familiar because there were some people born in Babylon that then came back to Jerusalem. They're on the precipice of something that they longed for, that they knew was promised, but they are very different people. Their relationship with God was different. Their relationship with each other was different. Their relationships with their neighbors, with society, and with the known world is different. As I typed up those last sentences as I'm preparing my sermon on Thursday, I couldn't help but think of our collective experience through the pandemic and the years and the events that took place within some of the worst parts of those days. We were removed from so much that was familiar, those things that tethered us. We couldn't gather with people we loved. We had to exercise distance from one another. Going to the grocery store required uh, us to consider the risks and the benefits. I remember feeling that. Like, is it worth getting sick so that I can get milk? Anyone? Say it again. Instacart. <laughs> there was that too, Hillary. There was that too. It was almost as though anyone or everyone could have COVID. And so anyone and everyone was a threat. And all of this, you know, it affected our spiritual life. 
The things that kept us tethered to God, the, the practices of joining God's community at church or participating in, in service in, out in the community or doing the connection, you know, like shaking hands, a high five, doing the kind of care that we could do. It was all halted or it, or it had to be massively adjusted. I would like to say it was an exile in some ways. And then, and then we saw political division and, and, and deeply dividing conflict over racial justice and mask wearing and vaccines and so much more. We were exiled from our familiar lands and, and our relationships changed. Neighbor and friend relationships, societal relationships and relationships that we had to the world, everything was different. Perhaps like me, as, as you're accessing those memories, it's quite difficult. Like, oh, we lived through that. I think that, that feeling, even just uh, holding those memories, helps put into context Nehemiah's prayer. I've paraphrased it. But Nehemiah says to God, uh, remember what you said, God. Yes. You would remove us from the land if we were unfaithful, but, but if, you, if we returned to you, if, if we conformed our lives towards the good of a relationship with you, even those who were so, so far away from home, even those who feel so, so distant, would be brought back. They belong to you. Nehemiah says, we belong to you, God. You already redeemed them. God, you already redeemed us. You exercised great power to liberate them. Do you remember? Do you remember? After all this, years, decades of exile, Nehemiah appeals to God. And Nehemiah appeals to God for the sake of the promise and for the sake of the people. We're going to focus on those two things, the promise and the people. Every time I come across someone speaking honestly with God in Scripture, I get a little kick. And I can't help, as I hear Nehemiah's words, hear, uh, to hear my own kids' voices when I read essentially, but you said, God. And usually with my kids, it's about screen time or having another treat. But here, uh, Nehemiah uh, is saying, you said, God. You made a promise to us. And God made the promise to bring the people back. And Nehemiah is reminding God of God's promise. It's a holy thing, actually, I think. I think it's a holy, but you said God. I wonder if you've ever said these before. Because God did say when the people were in exile, and we read about it in Jeremiah 31, uh, God said, um, uh, well, Jeremiah says, the Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting kindness. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. And God says, I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. This was God's promise to the people while they were in exile in Babylon. God says, I promise to rebuild. The people didn't ask God to do this. God's idea was to rebuild. It was God's idea. 
During the next seven weeks, as we look at Nehemiah, this week included, we must remember that it was God who initiated rebuilding with a promise. The people weren't like, hey, I have a great idea. No, God had the great idea. And this is significant for us, and this is true for us. This is true for those who have and and will experience spiritual exile. God holds the plans and the promises of those in exile. I think of those who have, as I've heard and even said myself, walked away from the faith. I don't think that phrase is helpful. I think of those who feel as though the church has failed them or church people have failed them. I think of those who feel as though God has failed them. And those feelings can be valid and God is still holding the exiled. Those feelings are valid and God is still maintaining a promise. A promise that God holds doesn't always look to us humans like it's being held though. And this is part of what Nehemiah is talking about with God. Sometimes it looks as though God would would rather juggle those promises in the air haphazardly than carefully tend to those promises. Sometimes we are fed stories that God is quick to flick those promises away. And I'm certain that for the Israelites in exile, for that long amount of time, they may have felt just flicked away, just juggled into confusion just discarded. But our perception of God's holding doesn't impact God's holding. Our perception of God's holding doesn't impact God's holding. And this is the grand and extremely frustrating mystery of being one of God's own. God holds the promise, and God holds the people. God holds the promise for the sake of the people. It's not for the sake of the, of the building or the rebuilding or the actual wall or the actual structure of things. God is holding a promise for the sake of the people. And so while we might be interested in the wall that Nehemiah built, God is interested in the people that Nehemiah is serving. God is not impressed by their physical structures that they're building, but he's actually impressed and and interested in the condition of their hearts and their lives and their stories that are being rebuilt as they put their hands to the wall. The wall, in some ways, is a spiritual metaphor for them. This matters uh, to me because I am sometimes too fixated on the structures of things that I forget the people that the structures served. And I was reminded of this uh, during our most recent intergenerational gingerbread housemaking event in December. There's a connection, and I'm going to make it, okay? Our assignment was to build a gingerbread house in groups or teams. And I heard uh, teams, and I immediately made this whole thing a competition, all right? Uh, In my mind, I was like, we're going to make the best one. It's going to be the strongest. And so uh, I know that it's my shadow side to do that. Every once in a while, I just turn things into a competition that don't need to be. I'm learning. I'm learning. So naturally, because I thought it was a competition, I was like, well, I'm going to stack my team. I'm going to get the best team to build a gingerbread house 
for an intergenerational church event, okay? Okay. So after a few rounds of interviews, I'd like to call them, um, and I said, come be on our team, and people said no, uh, but they were kind about it. Ellen Brendan came uh, into the overflow room with her plate of food because we were eating first, and I uh, encouraged slash begged slash forced her to join our team. I said, sit down right here. Uh, you're, on, you're on our team. If you don't know Ellen yet, she's sitting over there blushing. Um, she is a bridge engineer, okay? She knows how to build, like for her job, all right? She gets paid to do this. There is no one more qualified to craft an amazing gingerbread house than Ellen. I got the best person on my team. So she joined our team, and she immediately set to work, but not on her own. She engaged my son Bjorn right away. And it, I didn't know if uh, they had ever had time to make a connection before, um, if, if Bjorn maybe knew Ellen's name, but, but, but and Ellen may, maybe knew Bjorn's name, but I don't know if they had ever had some sort of relational connection. But there they were together crafting uh, this gingerbread house, complete with a bridge, because we had to. <laughs> What I didn't foresee in, in forcing Ellen to be on our team uh, was that this connection of relationship that would take place would matter so much, both to me and then to my son. And it was because Ellen was intentional to make the whole thing not about the structure, but about the relationship. She was very purposeful to let Bjorn try his hand at, at building things. She suggested some things, and then when he made suggestions, she welcomed them. She said, oh, that's a good idea. What if we try it this way? Have you ever done this in school? She asked, she asked these questions. And then she celebrated when we finally made the bridge stand on its own, and, and there was frosting everywhere. And, uh, and she, I'm sure, would like some of it ricocheted off of my kids onto her. I was very grateful. Ellen had a, a vision beyond my own. I had the structure in mind. I had winning in mind. And Ellen decided to make it about the relationship. And it had an impact on me. I needed her to model this for me. Those of us who find ourselves maybe with similar tendencies, maybe find ourselves in spiritual exile, maybe find ourselves in community and, and we don't really know what we're doing or why we're doing it. The good news that we get to see, uh, we're beginning to see in Nehemiah is that God is very interested in building relationship, not just structure. And God is also very interested in holding on to God's people through a promise he made. And that this is especially true for those who have been exiled spiritually. And we're going to see this as we move through Nehemiah. We're going to see the character of God who holds people into a promise that looks very different, maybe even very new compared to what they have experienced before. So I invite you, no matter how you have come to this space, whether you find yourself in exile or not, whether you find yourself committed to the structure or not, maybe you find yourself just weary of the journey. I invite you to, 
to join with us as we start rebuilding. Not just rebuilding the structure, but rebuilding a faith and a community and a life together. There's a promise here, and God is holding it, and God is holding you in that promise. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you deal with us and that you deal with us so lovingly and that you invite us along so graciously and that when we make giant mistakes, you're always calling us back. And when we ha think we have it one way, you, you just hold us until we understand it's a different way. God, thank you that you are always promising for us and that we get to experience the fruit of that promise. Often, whether we believe it or, or see it or don't. And so God, as we prepare our hearts for your table to receive nourishment for the journey, would you come to draw us back? Would we believe in our holding? In Jesus' name, amen.